This is the In Self-Defense Podcast with Don West and Sean Vincent, exploring high-profile self-defense cases and identifying the lessons learned for concealed carriers. Hey everybody, this is Sean Vincent. Thanks for listening in. Today is part two of our conversation about the Kyle Rittenhouse case. Uh, Last week, we spoke with Don West. He's National Trial Counsel for CCW Safe and a veteran criminal defense lawyer. We also spoke with Steve Moses. He's a CCW Safe contributor, veteran of law enforcement. He's a well-regarded weapons instructor. And we dug into this controversial case. I'm certain you've heard of it. Kyle Rittenhouse, 17-year-old, lives in Illinois. He drove into across state lines kenosha wisconsin where there had been nights of rioting looting fires businesses destroyed in the wake of the police shooting of jacob blake ostensibly rittenhouse was there to provide help and to provide protection for businesses that were threatened with the violence Uh, He spoke to a reporter on the night of August 25th. He demonstrated that he had his med pack to help people with first aid if required. He also pointed out that he was carrying a long rifle in case he had to defend himself. It turns out he did. Kyle Rittenhouse shot three people on the night of August 25th. Uh, He's been charged Uh, with the homicides his claim is self-defense there's video that's been released in the news the lawyers of kyle rittenhouse have released other video in an effort to raise money for his defense there's a lot of politics surrounding this case we're trying to cut through that politics and focus on each self-defense incident on its own merits don west reminds us that in a court of law, a a jury is going to be asked to look at each one of the shootings as an individual incident, and they're going to have to decide whether it was justified based upon those facts. And so, uh, in large part, we structured our conversation by breaking out each individual shooting. So, here's what we talked about last week. We got Kyle Rittenhouse there in Kenosha, He is being chased by a 36-year-old named Joseph Rosenbaum. Rosenbaum, according to the video provided by Rittenhouse's lawyers, had been setting dumpsters on fire and pushing them in towards businesses. Uh, It looks like uh, Rittenhouse was part of a team that was trying to put out those fires. Rosenbaum took issue with that and chased after Rittenhouse. Got him cornered between two cars. A crowd was gathering, uh, according to a reporter who was also a key witness to this. Rosenbaum had thrown something at Rittenhouse. He approached him aggressively. He tried to get his hands on Rittenhouse's rifle. And when they're in very close quarters, that's when Rittenhouse shot several times. He struck Rosenbaum four times. In the immediate aftermath, Rittenhouse called a friend, said he had shot somebody, appeared to be willing to provide aid. However, there are other people attending to Rosenbaum, who is now prone, dying on the ground. 
once there were whispers from this group of people that they should retaliate against Rittenhouse for the shooting. Rittenhouse darts off, and while he's retreating, elements of the crowd, passersby, begin to follow him and attack him. Uh, he has an encounter with multiple people in the street. He gets knocked down. Uh, they try to go for his gun. And then we have the second and the third shooting. So um, we're going to begin our conversation today looking at the second shooting, which was the shooting of Anthony Huber. We're going to explore the third shooting and then talk about some of the larger themes that this case brings out. One being whether a gun owner or concealed carrier should ever intentionally put themselves in a circumstance where they uh, know with some certainty that they may need to use their weapon in self-defense. And we're going to talk to Don West about what are the key obstacles that Rittenhouse faces in his legal defense. Here's my conversation, part two of the Rittenhouse case with Steve Moses and Don West. Thanks for listening. So what do we think about this the second shooting, this Anthony Huber? He, Anthony's hit him, hit him with a skateboard, and now he's trying to wrestle his rifle away. I mean, if, if the first one was justified, I, I see this one is justified based on what we know and what we saw as well. I mean, it's up to a jury at this point, right? But mm-hmm. uh, I, I think there's a strong case, I mean, to be equivocal, since there's a lot we don't know, I mean, I think he's got a strong case that that if that guy had gotten his rifle, he was in for a world of hurt. And I think even perhaps more so than in the Rosenbaum shooting, Rittenhouse would have every reason to believe that all of these guys were in it as part of a joint attack. They were just taking their own turns and that he was essentially fighting all of them. The first guy that tried to kick him that didn't knock him out um, was followed by Huber, who was able to get his hands on him, hit him with a skateboard, pull on the gun. I think all of that is consistent in the bigger picture with Rittenhouse reasonably believing he was facing a um, life-threatening uh, attack. So sure. Uh, and uh, keeping, keeping in mind, it, it's really Rittenhouse's perception uh, notwithstanding what Huber may have actually been intending to do. He could have simply intended to disarm use him. the skateboard yeah, as part of his attempt to disarm him without ever intending to seriously injure him or, or kill him. But uh, that is one scenario, but certainly not the only scenario. And certainly Rittenhouse would have a reasonable belief that that wasn't necessarily the only thing that was going to happen. So I, I, don't, I don't think there's... I don't think that's a hard call, actually, uh, under these circumstances. The, to to call him justified. justified, yeah. And then, and then this yeah. third one, where you got a guy with a gun coming up to him in an aggressive way, does the gun make that an easier call even yet? Probably. Uh, he wasn't. Um, well, I, I guess we'll, I'll, I'll do it the other, other other way around. The fact that he only shot him once, that is, that Rittenhouse shot Grosquitz once and clearly neutralized the threat. He just happened to hit him in the gun hand 
and he didn't keep shooting, I think suggests that Rittenhouse uh, did, did the things that someone would be expected to do in the face even of a deadly force threat. Neutralize the threat and then stop. And then once the likewise threat retreated, the guy he was done. With, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and likewise with the guy with his hands up behind him. Uh, remarkably, at age 17, under, those, uh, under these circumstances, it's pretty remarkable to me. And thankfully, Rittenhouse had the wherewithal not to just start firing into the crowd. That, uh, that he reasonably perceived were coming to, coming to get him. And all of that, I think, helps him. I, I, I guess let me circle back and say, and I think all of those things that he didn't do, um, he, that he didn't continue to fire, that he didn't fire wantonly or randomly into the crowd, all of that, I think, goes back to help him justify the use of deadly force on those um, in those instances that he did. Yeah, Steve, I was going to ask you on this because we talked earlier and I mentioned that Richard McGinnis, the reporter, seemed to suggest uh, in a news report that Rittenhouse didn't seem to handle the rifle particularly competently. But uh, from what we see in that video, uh, he seemed to get the job done if if he believed he was really under a, a attack there. What, what's your, all the preamble and postamble and the wisdom of having it in that situation aside, uh, he was in a, he was facing a lot of people who were aggressive at him and he walked out of there uh, relatively unharmed. And <laughs> Don, legally, he's facing a lot of charges. Um, and one thing I, I wanted to ask: Does he have does he have to be justified in shooting Rosenbaum, the first guy, to be justified for the next two? What what's a, as a defense attorney? What what do you think his biggest challenge is going to be? That's an interesting question. I have to reflect on that a moment. In, in some ways, like some of these other high-profile cases, 
uh, that we've talked about or been involved in, uh, one of the big challenges of his defense lawyer is going to be the misinformation that's out there in the media that sort of um, taints the jury because ultimately his fate will be decided by 12 people who have been exposed to the media, both good and bad, for Rittenhouse. In addition to the circumstances, he was, by all accounts, um, illegally in possession of that gun. As a 17-year-old under Wisconsin law, he's really not allowed to possess uh, a gun. And there's some dispute and some controversy about that. The, the statutes that apply are somewhat ambiguous with exceptions for hunters and all sorts of things. But I think the bottom line ultimately will be is that he's guilty of that misdemeanor crime of illegally possessing that firearm. He was also brazenly and blatantly violating the curfew, as were many, many others. But he was also there. There was a state of emergency uh, in, in Kenosha. So he has some of that that people will latch onto. I, I know when we've talked about the Zimmerman case and some of the other high profile cases, what seems to persuade people a lot of times about the guilt or innocence of individuals has almost nothing to do with the actual facts of the case. Uh, Zimmerman got out of the truck when he wasn't supposed to, or he was told not to follow him, and he did. Stuff that really wasn't factually true, but things that made such an impression that it clouded the judgment on the significant facts and significant issues. So I think, I think some of those things are going to be challenges for the defense lawyer, but you can tell when you reference that video early on and some of the, um, some of the news outlets that have been championing Rittenhouse for reasons far beyond him legally defending himself, but justifying that he was there because the government had failed to protect the businesses and the citizens, making it a huge political wave that the defense lawyers and, and team have already started to try to shift, uh, shift the narrative. All of that aside, I, I think one of the things will be focusing the jury on each individual shooting victim as being distinct and separate. Uh, some commentators have talked about this being one continuous event. I don't think it was. I think the shooting of Rosenbaum was distinct and separate and will be judged distinctly and separate from the shooting of Huber, even though they're connected. But I think if he's not justified in Rosenbaum and he's convicted of something, maybe, uh, maybe less than what he's actually accused of, a lesser degree of, of criminal homicide, that would not in and of itself preclude the jury from finding him not guilty on the other counts that relate to Huber and, and Grossquitz. I think those are separate. And the analysis is separate. I think there's a real possibility here, though, because juries are allowed, they're given instructions, but juries ultimately decide how they're going to judge a defendant. And I think you're right in that the defense has to keep this as much as possible on each individual charge and each individual event. And they're going to want the jury to look at that, uh, with a, with the shortest time span possible. Right. And, and I say this because I think 
it's very possible that you get a jury who might find by the facts of the law that Rittenhouse is justified in each one of those individual shootings, but will find themselves unable to forgive him for traveling across state lines, taking on a long rifle and going to a place where he knew there was a strong possibility that he'd get in a confrontation where he'd need to use it and they'll hold him morally responsible for it. Yeah, I, th I think that's an excellent point that he's already guilty of something because it all goes back to him and his decision to show up there with that gun. And there will be people that feel compelled and justified in their own minds to say uh, two people would be alive and another one would have the use of his arm if Rittenhouse had made a better decision early on and will want to hold him legally accountable for those decisions, even if factually and legally at the moments he pulled the trigger, it was uh, justifiable use of deadly force. I, I think that's a big, big problem when the narratives in the media are, are dripping and just drenched in, uh, in political agenda, uh, individual stakeholders in the outcome, and that the jury is going to be really challenged, I think, to focus on the facts. And of course, keeping in mind that the 12-person jury that decides uh, Kyle Rittenhouse's fate, fate will not be the ones that the lawyers choose. It'll be the ones that the lawyers didn't get rid of. <laughs> or, or couldn't get rid of. Chances are, yeah. or couldn't get rid of, and chances are you will have a, a very wide range of views on guns, on protests, on, you know, um, all of those hot button issues that are present in this case. And it's gonna be, uh, it's gonna be a huge challenge, I think, for Kyle Rittenhouse to get a fair trial. And what I mean by that is, a, is true due process, and that is that his fate is legally determined based on an analysis of the of law the relevant and the evidence facts. without, yep, exactly. Yeah. Steve, I wanna ask this question of you. You're, you. We've talked before and you were involved with law enforcement and you used to be part of, is it fair to say, tactical teams that would go serve warrants in situations that had the potential to turn ugly? Yes, sir. Yeah, and, and so there's a circumstance where you are uh, arming yourself and putting yourself in danger. Yes. And you, in in those cases, you did that as a uh, what's what's the right term when you're? Well, I was a member of the special response team primarily, and then uh, on a few occasions when I worked on a uh, a, a warrant team, and we picked up people that had uh, bench warrants or bench bench warrants out for them. Sure, uh, and so. I guess the political debate here, and, and that's a choice that you made, and you did it um, in a way that was legal, and, and it's the way our civilization has decided to take care of those types of issues, right? That's correct. And, and it was your job. And I don't want to get involved in the politics of, of right or wrong, Rittenhouse's choice, or, or the way he felt that he needed to 
help protect these businesses. But here's what I'm getting at is a gun owner who decides to leave a place of safety to go to a place where it is not safe. You know, you talked earlier in this podcast that there are circumstances that can be imagined where you have to do something that you put yourself in danger and then you have your firearm to defend yourself. But putting yourself in that danger is such an extraordinarily huge life or death important decision to make. Absolutely. Absolutely. It should not be entered into lightly. Uh, the consequences are just so, you know, enormous. Uh, if something goes wrong, and as we've seen here and even, you know, in other cases we've discussed, there's so many different things that can go bad that it's even hard to imagine what they all might be. And so the very best choice you know, is to, you know, uh, do what you have to do to take care of yourself, your family, uh, your property that you possess to the extent that it's lawful. But otherwise, uh, it's just almost never a good idea to go be the hero. Yeah. And get a good insurance policy and keep it up to date, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and Don, I think if I if I recall from the, the criminal complaint, you know, I think some of these charges against him he could face up to 60 years in prison uh, that it's so much time there's so much time associated with these charges that if he's convicted of anything he's going to spend a significant part of his life in prison he's being tried as an adult uh, a moment on that he's 17 years old uh, when this event took place. So technically he's a juvenile, but in most states, while there would be a juvenile court process available for other 17-year-olds that were charged with various uh, juvenile offenses, which equate to criminal offenses as adult, in many instances there the prosecutor has the discretion based upon the charge and the age of the juvenile to prosecute as an adult yeah. and if so um, i guess i'm getting out so here is convicted he would be treated as this an first adult. degree reckless homicide uh, conviction may be sentenced to a term of imprisonment not to exceed 60 years so so one one conviction on that and the kid could be uh you know what like 77 years old when he gets out of jail i i mentioned this just to underscore the gravity of the decision that accompanies grabbing your rifle and going to defend somebody's property. These charges carry huge potential penalties, including the count one that you're talking about against Rosenbaum because of the nature of the charge, reckless homicide, use of a dangerous weapon, that's up to 60 years. But he's charged with first-degree intentional homicide as well in reference to uh, Anthony Huber. And that's a life sentence. If, if I'm not mistaken, that's a mandatory life sentence. And he's got other charges that relate to uh, McGinnis, uh, a lesser charge, but still punishable by up to 12 years in prison, I think. And then additional enhancers, um, the, the charge against... Um, him relating to shooting gross quits, gross quits. And those could all pile up, up one on top of another. years as well. Yeah, they're all independent, separate 
offenses that have to be proven, each element of each offense has to be proven. Now self-defense would be, or justifiable use of force, would be a defense to all of them except for the possession of the gun. Uh, well, and maybe, geez, I'm not sure now regarding McGinnis, the reporter, he's charged with this uh, reckless endangerment thing. I would assume that self-defense would also um, would also help him there, although I don't know, because I don't know enough of the facts, how McGinnis became a, an alleged victim of that. But yeah, each of these are tried separately. Each of the elements have to be proven separately. But upon conviction, I, I think the sentencing court would have the discretion uh, to impose the sentences concurrently or consecutively. But frankly, if you have a mandatory life sentence, it hardly matters what happens with the other well, stuff. Well, and 60, you know? 60 so years is, say, is essentially life, you know. Yeah, the, 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 and if there's anything that we have tried to reinforce during the course of our discussion of these various cases is that there becomes a point in time where you lose control of what happens to you. You may have control up to a point. There may be these moments where you could uh, go a different direction, but once you're all in, you're all in and you have no control. Kyle, Kyle Rittenhouse cannot control what charges he's facing. He can't control whether he's going to get convicted. He can have good lawyers do their very best, but that's all they can do. And um, I would hope that the jury would see this ultimately as the way we, we're seeing it based upon the information that we have, but he can't control that either. He has, uh, and the jury in these political times, um, uh, who knows, who knows? I do know though the next couple of years, year and a half is going to be the worst couple of years that Kyle Rittenhouse will, uh, you know, has spent in his short life so far, and let's hope that's the end of it. Yeah, Steve. You I don't. I'm sorry. I didn't. I didn't mean the end of his life. Obviously, I mean the end of the of the trauma and the ordeal. What happened to him um, that night, and what is happening to him now, will be, you know, life changing. Obviously, yeah. he'll never get past all of this, even if he's ultimately acquitted. And Steve, one of the new lessons I've got from this, yeah, you recall the the Zach Peters case, where that uh, that kid who was at home that they broke into his house and he warded the them three. off. Mm -hmm. They warded yes, them off yeah. with uh, an AR-15 style rifle, and Correct. I think that that case doesn't make national headlines if he had used a uh, the you know, Glock. If he'd had a pistol instead of the rifle, uh, that's 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 very possible. Uh, the flip side of that is that when it actually comes to defending yourself and your family, an AR-15 type rifle or similar semi-automatic rifle with a detachable box magazine is far more effective sure. than a handgun. Uh, it has a greater uh, deterrent uh, effect than a handgun uh, you can use it uh, in a more surgical manner if that's necessary in order to limit the, the the possible danger to others there's a reason that tactical teams 
uh, will, uh, if they are, have to take down a one-bedroom apartment, uh, still uh, multiple people with that in, within that tech team will, large, will probably be using rifles. And that's just because a rifle is just so much more effective at stopping a deadly threat quickly than a handgun. So I'm very much in favor of rifles. I think they have their place. I just don't think uh, carrying a rifle out in public, especially in a mass protest situation, is a good idea for anybody. Well, and like like you're, uh, I'm glad you, and I'm glad you made that distinction because once you once you're outside of your house, the inside your house it has that amazing deterrent value. Outside of the house, it attracts unwanted attention to you, and it's something that you it, can't conceal. It, it does, and of course, you know, for people that live in rural areas and everything, where stuff can actually happen at a greater distance. Uh, or also just even for predator control. Yeah. You know, it very much has a place in there. Uh, it's just that to go and carry a long gun in a public setting, especially in an urban area, uh, I think a big part of that is to just, I hate to say this, draw attention to yourself. Yeah, and then if you're in a close quarters conflict with a lot of people, uh, you're much more at risk of losing control of the rifle than you would be a uh, pistol. Uh, that's even true if it's just one person. If it's that's just true one if person. it's even one person. And, you know, uh, a lot of concern about, you know, people having their firearms uh, taken away from them. You know, in the police academy, you're taught that every encounter you go to has the potential of ending up in a gunfight because you're bringing the gun. And there's a reason that police officers uh, use holsters that have either level two or level three retention uh, devices, and that reason is to prevent the handgun from being taken away from them easily. So, you know, that's a very dangerous weapon. Uh, the assumption is is that if someone just physically attempts to take your handgun away from you, uh, there's a strong likelihood that their intent is to use it against you. It doesn't mean that you have to always, you know, oh my gosh, he's going for my gun, I need to kill him. It means I need to defend myself if I can defend myself uh, without using deadly force. That's all the better. But I need to be prepared to be, you know, use deadly force because I don't know what the outcome of this is going to be. Don, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you think is relevant to mention to the CCW Safe members on this case? You know, this is a this is a hard case because what we haven't. I don't mean a hard case legally. I think it's fairly straightforward legally and factually. And even though there are lots of things floating around that people will latch on to uh, to criticize Kyle Rittenhouse, and for good reason in large part, I think when you focus specifically on the events and the acts that uh, he was justified under those circumstances that he never should have been involved in to start with. But once he got involved in them, that uh, he was attacked and that he had the right to defend himself, unfortunately, with the outcome, not just to those that he shot, but then ultimately to him as well. What's so hard is that when your community is uh, threatened, you know, these protests resulted in the majority, as they say, peaceful protests, but there was what could reasonably be called 
rioting. There were businesses burned. There was a car lot where something like 50 cars were destroyed um, that had gone on for a while. And Kyle Rittenhouse and his, his others went there really thinking they were needed. And I suppose that was driven in large part by their perception that um, they were that the community was being let down by those who had the responsibility to protect person and property. So they went there uh, as they called themselves guards, others called them vigilantes. They may have been very well intended to keep property from burning and people from being injured, but um, Steve, I, 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 what do you do? You know, I, I know we talk about well, you just shouldn't go there with the gun. Is that, is that what the bottom line is? That the suggestion is that it's going to be volatile. Somebody is likely to get killed. Somebody is likely to get arrested. And even though there may be threats to property and people, um, responsible concealed carriers, those that have even some training with firearms should simply let the government do their job for better or for worse and not and not involve themselves and you know i just don't i don't know how to respond to that because of the good intentions that once again went so tragically yeah. i guess you wrong. just have to be prepared you just have to be realistic about what the consequences are if it goes off the rails i mean if you if you decide that it's worth me taking somebody's life and worth potentially spending the rest of my life in jail and if you look at that and say, "Am I if I'm sitting in jail on year 30 of my 65-year sentence, am I still going to feel like this was the right thing to do? Then I guess if you've made that calculation, you can say yes to that. But Steve, you, you were about to add in and I cut you off. Well, uh, my, my belief is, is that, you know, the threat can come from all different directions in all different forms and that... Uh, we're just as likely to, you know, have an issue with a, a carjacker or a mugger, uh, an armed robber, as we are with a, uh, you know, encountering, you know, violent people within a mob. So my my recommendation is, is any time that a concealed carrier can lawfully carry, that they do exactly that. In terms of that saying that I'd said earlier, if it's too dangerous to go there without a gun, it's too dangerous to go there with a gun. Uh, basically what that means is that having a gun does not necessarily uh, reduce the danger to you. Uh, it doesn't make things more likely to turn out in your favor. Uh, you're still at risk, but there just may be times that we have to go and do something that we really don't have any other choice but to go do. And if indeed that's going to be the case, then anything we can kind of do to be the gray man, that is to kind of go under the radar, not call attention to our person and, you know, make the very best decisions that we can under the circumstances and then act upon it, uh, that would that would be my recommendation. Meaning if Rittenhouse had a, had a pistol that was concealed and it stayed concealed, or maybe if he weren't armed at all and just brought his med kit, there's the possibility that he never would have needed his rifle in the first place. 
Well, absolutely. And the very fact that he felt like uh, he needed to be armed was just a clear indication that he thought it was a dangerous situation. And so, you know, let's, let's kind of look back at this. Okay, he's a 17-year-old kid with a med kit. Uh, there is riots going on in a community in which the community itself is not going to great efforts to suppress. Uh, you're probably in an environment that is not uh, friendly towards the actions of concealed carriers. That's a lot of, uh, you know, it's a lot that's of a lot of danger signals. Yeah. And so, you know, as, as I'm sure he would agree now, the best thing he could have done was stay home. Don, are you surprised they charged this case the way they did? I don't think so for a couple of reasons. One, I think that the circumstances demanded a decision. Not that I agree with the decision, but I think the circumstances demanded it because of the, the political context. Uh, I'm also not surprised that they charged him the way they did without thorough investigation because of that same reason or the charges that were filed without that same reason. What I was a little surprised at, frankly, was what I thought was a pretty detailed complaint in support of the charges that track pretty well with the things that we've talked about, that even track pretty well with the video that Rittenhouse's lawyer has compiled that says far more about self-defense than a lot of the complaints do. I remember back in the day of the, the Zimmerman probable cause affidavit was ridiculous in the context that it supposedly supported this charge of second degree murder, but had almost no reference whatsoever to any self-defense type evidence that clearly existed and was known. Uh, I didn't see that here. It looked to me that most of what they knew was in there uh, to be interpreted keeping in mind, of course, that self-defense is an affirmative defense, which means it has to be raised and shown to some degree uh, in order for the jury to consider it. So it doesn't surprise me that the prosecutor either discounted that or didn't even really factor it in on their decision whether to charge him. He did shoot all these people. There's no doubt about that. Uh, it seems pretty clear to me that he had a pretty good reason to do it under these circumstances, but uh, no, I'm not surprised um, when you put it all together how this came out. Disappointed, I think, uh, but not surprised. All right, that's the end of our podcast today. Guys, thanks for listening through to the end. Uh, this is a big case. You can be certain that we'll be following it and we'll be talking about it again. Until then, be smart. Stay safe. Take care.